I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. The sermon title is Pressing On. This is a very popular text. As we're standing in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'm reminded that uh, one of my mentors and professors, somebody who preached here for an ordination service nearly 20 years ago, uh, Dr. Wayne McDill, says, if you can't preach a good sermon, at least read a good text. Well, this is a great text. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching or straining forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. I pray your blessing upon the reading and hearing of it but I pray your empowerment for the living it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to grab my water because I think I'm going to need it to get through this message today. The story is told in Our Daily Bread in a particular devotion that Andrew Jackson's boyhood friends couldn't understand how he became a famous general and then the president of the United States in 1829. The excerpt from Our Daily Bread says, they knew of other men who had greater talent but who never succeeded. One of Jackson's friends said, why, Jim Brown, who lived right down the pipe from Jackson, was not only smarter, but he could throw Andy three times out of four in a wrestling match. But look where Andy is now. Another friend who heard him say this said, how did there happen to be a fourth time? Didn't they usually say three times and you're out? He said, sure, they were supposed to, but not Andy. He would never admit he was beat. He would never stay throwed. Jim Brown would get tired, and on the fourth try, Andrew Jackson would throw him and proclaim himself the winner. Devotion went on to share how we need to have that kind of persistence in life, that kind of determination, that kind of pressing on, to never say we've been throwed, so to speak. You feel like over the past year you've been thrown around just a little bit? Feel like you've been whipped every now and then? Do you feel like sometimes you're going to throw in the towel? Maybe we can learn a lesson from Andrew Jackson and his faith and persistence here. He never would give up. He never would quit. He kept pressing on. Until one day he became president of the United States. It wasn't just that he was a victor, he was an influencer who helped shape his world. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi from Roman house arrest. The city of Philippi was a strategic city. It was where the first European church plant was in Paul's missionary journeys. And this was a city that was named Philippi after uh, Philip of Macedon. You, you may not recognize his name, but he was the father of Alexander the Great. Then later, the Romans would conquer this strategic city on the edge of Europe there because it meant not only the access to the gold mines, it meant that now the Roman Empire is fully established. We have 
the region. We have the territory. We have this now as a military base. So the, the city became a military base, and it continued to attract people because of the various gold mines in the area. Well, that's why in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's important to see in the Greek language that that working out your salvation is mining language. It doesn't mean get a, piece of pencil, a pencil and a piece of paper and kind of work it out or try to figure in your head whether or not you're saved. It's saying because you're saved, because Jesus has put his life in you, you're to dig deep and you're to mine out those precious jewels, those valuables, that rich gold that he has placed deep within you. You are to discover all that it means to have Christ living in you and to work that out, to mine that out. Well, after this Roman Empire had been established about a century later in this city, a revolutionary showed up, and his name was the Apostle Paul. Paul was not very popular because he was preaching a message that kind of messed up what people were thinking and the lives they were living. Now, some were saved, like Lydia. Lydia was known as a seller of purple, this purple cloth that was dyed with the dyes that were there in Philippi. She became a believer and became the hostess of a house church, a great example for someone wanting to reach their city for Christ. There was a demon-possessed girl who came to know the Lord as she was following them around, mocking the apostles. When they cast the demons out of this girl, it messed up those who were exploiting her situation. It also upset the local politicians as well. Does it ever seem like the political environment of the culture doesn't want somebody to come in preaching Jesus is the answer because that means that government's not the answer? Maybe that was just then. That's not today, is it? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? People would rather be in bondage or keep others in bondage so they would be dependent upon them and not dependent upon Almighty God. You know, you never see the legal system want to punish the brickyard preacher who stands on the sidewalk and yells all kinds of obscenities at people who walk by and that's because everybody looks at them and says, well, they're crazy. You never see the political system want to persecute the, the, the Amish people who embrace a, their version of the Christian faith, but they do so in isolation because they say, we don't feel threatened by that because they keep it to themselves. They keep to themselves. But when you as a church, as a believer, decide, I'm going to stand for the principles of this book, and I'm going to be very public with that, then you will face persecution. And that's what was happening in Philippi. There were kind of two extremes. Today, we might call those same extremes, liberalism and legalism. The liberalism, on the one hand, said, just, just go out and do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. Live the life you want to live. And don't be critical of anybody else's lifestyle. The legalism, on the other hand, through the religious Jews in that area, there were just a few of them, but through the religious Jews that were coming into the church, they were trying to modify outward behavior. Jeff mentioned that Jesus wants to change our heart, not our behavior. It's the changed heart that changes our life, but religious legalism says, no, I've got to get all the rules in place on the outside and neglects the inside. Paul says, 
in these first nine verses of this chapter, I'm not taking any confidence in the flesh. There's a lot of things I could brag about, but I'm not going to brag about that. I can't take any confidence in the flesh, but only in Jesus. And in that I can rejoice, and in that we can press on. And he says it over and over and over again in this wonderful letter. He says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Live a life of joy, and let that overflow in joy. Guard and guide your Christian life, and keep pressing on. So the question that we come to this morning is, how can we press on in 2014? I don't know what you're facing, and you probably don't know what you're facing in the upcoming year. But I know we're all called to press on. And Paul gives us a growth plan as you've been perhaps considering New Year's resolutions. Think a little bit deeper than a resolution. Think of a spiritual commitment, a sacrifice, an offering unto God. He gives us this outline in the text here of what we can do to make sure that we press on in 2014. And I think Paul would say first and foremost, even in his own life, he would say, strengthen your relationship with Christ. Above everything else, make a commitment today that in this upcoming year, I am going to strengthen my personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul is determined to know Jesus. This is a personal knowledge. He says, I want to know him. It's not a head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. He's saying, I want to truly live my life in relationship with Jesus. It's, it's more than knowing about him. It's knowing him personally. And he says, in knowing him personally, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. That, that's the spirit-filled life. This is where Romans 8, verse 9 says that if we have not the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. And then verse 11, it says the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. I don't know what God has in store for you in 2014, but I know this. He wants you to live. It has been said that the glory of God is man fully alive. So Paul tells the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 18, so don't be drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so much that he's setting those two things in contrast. There's, 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 there's a comparison element to that. He's saying, you know, if you, you begin to, this is one of the problems I personally have with social drinking. You, you begin to say, well, I know when to say when, and you take a drink, and then your brake fluid begins to leak, Right? And then he says it becomes excess. But in the same way, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we try Jesus and we begin to be filled with his spirit, it becomes a well. In John chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, there's going to be a well with inside of you, the Holy Spirit just bubbling over into eternal life. God wants you to live in 2014. Live your life to the fullest. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And one of the most unattractive things in the church to non-believers today are Christians who aren't living an abundant Christian life, being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of the resurrection. And then he talks not only of a personal and a powerful 
knowledge of Christ. He talks about a passionate knowledge of Christ. We want to leave this out, don't we? The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Suffering for my service for Christ. Suffering for my stand for Christ. He says, in doing so, this leads to the ultimate resurrection. For Paul to live with Christ, to die, was gain. And indeed, his sentence was about to be handed down for his own beheading. Strengthen your personal relationship with Christ. What what relationship do you want to focus on the most this upcoming year? See, if we put any relationship with anybody above our relationship with Jesus Christ, it becomes idolatry. Even our own spouse, even our kids. Any relationship more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ becomes idolatry. Ever been invited to something? Got there and wondered why you were invited? Why did they invite me here? Probably every teenage girl here is, you know, or those who used to be teenage girls. Can remember going to maybe, a, maybe there was a girl having a party and all the girlfriends were over and they were all having a good time. And there's always that one girl like, well, why, why was I invited here? You know, guys, you can get, kind of get a whole group of them together and they just kind of have this herd instinct. Girls tend to, they begin to buddy up and somebody gets left out. Those of you with teenage daughters know what I'm talking about, right? Girls begin to get left. Why did, I, why did I get invited? I'm not having any fun. Why did I get invited here? I've been invited to a political meeting before and wondered, why did they invite the preacher here? They didn't, they didn't really want, nobody wants to talk to me about these issues and nobody wants to hear what I've got to say. No one's listening. No one's asking me any questions. So why are you talking about that? Well, why do we invite Jesus into our life? You think he's ever wondering, man, they're not listening to me. They're not making me the center of attention. They're not asking me for advice. They're not calling on me. They're not opening my word. Let me ask you this. Are are you trading more text messages with somebody than you are spending time reading God's text message to you? I'm not going to ask you to turn in your phones today or anything like that. But think about your, your list. If you were to scroll through your text messages, whose text messages are you reading more of than you're reading God's text to you? This love letter that he sent from heaven. Does the person at the top of your Snapchat list Hear more from you. Some of you are going, what in the world is Snapchat? Ask your kids. This person at the top of your Snapchat list hear more from you than Jesus Christ, our intercessor, the one mediator between God and man? Are they hearing more from you than Jesus is hearing? You pour out your heart to him and desiring to grow in relationship with him, not just to get what you want. Listen, the wonderful thing about prayer is not as that, that it's a means to an end, but that it's a, an end in itself. Because in our prayer life, we are enjoying communion with Almighty God. Does Facebook and Instagram time become more important than your quiet time? 
Will you repent today and make Jesus number one? First Peter chapter three and verse 15 says, sanctify or set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart. Give him that preeminent spot, that number one spot, and let it be known whether somebody looks at your smartphone or your checkbook or whatever it may be, people would be able to say, wow, Jesus truly is number one in their life. Make that relationship the priority relationship in the upcoming year. Pastor, I might have to neglect my wife or my kids. No, it doesn't happen that way. Tina will tell you that when I am closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a better husband and a better father. Make that relationship number one. Secondly, then once you have done that, seek a new vision for personal development. Look at verse 12. It says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected. Paul said, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not perfect. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Here's the wonderful message of the gospel. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, he rose again, conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave forever. He took hold of personal holiness when you had no holiness. He took hold of that which would allow you to stand before Almighty Holy God in a place called heaven when you could do nothing for yourself. He took hold of that for you, and he took hold of you for that purpose. And what Paul is saying is, I want to grow in my relationship with Christ and live in character as if he's already taken hold of that that I might become more and more practically who he has already made me to be positionally. It might be true in my life. He did not allow contentment in Christ to become complacency for Christ. And I want to say that again. I would encourage some of you to probably write this down if you're taking note of this. Paul, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, did not allow contentment in Christ to become complacency for Christ. See, contentment in Christ, meaning I am satisfied with Christ. I've got Jesus. I've got all I need. Sometimes those of us who grasp that theologically and we come to a wonderful place, wow, wow, man, I've got everything I need in Jesus. If we're not careful, we'll let our contentment in Christ become complacency for Christ and we're not found growing and making a difference and and arriving at different levels of spiritual growth in our lives. Paul says, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't attained. I'm perfect positionally before God, but practically I'm not living a perfect life. I'm not as mature as I need to be. But one thing I do, look at verse 13. I, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived yet. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward. Those things that are ahead. Are you reaching forward? Are you straining? Are you able to forget those things that are behind? What was, what was behind, Paul? When you go back and read the beginning of the chapter, he had past successes and he had past failures. He had persecuted the church. He was present when those who were even stoned to death like Stephen, he was present 
giving his blessing on that, there were some things in Paul's past that he would like to forget. Is there anything, any past failures in your life that you would like to forget? I know there are in my life. You look back at 2013 and say, boy, I blew it there and I blew it there and I didn't accomplish this. There are some past failures in our lives. Paul's saying, you know what? I can't live in the past if it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. If he has forgiven me, then I'm going to move on, forgetting those things towards your behind. But he also had past successes. And sometimes we do like to camp out there. As a matter of fact, I would say this for, for many churches and, and many believers today. The greatest threat to future victories is not past failures, but past successes. Well, I remember back in the 70s. I remember back in the 80s, the glory days. Well, back in the 90s. And we look back at past successes when this was good and that was good and that was wonderful. Remember when we could do this? Remember when we could go there? We sing about the glory days. Paul's saying, no, 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 the best. Here's Paul coming to the end of his life. He's under Roman house arrest, and he's saying, the best is yet to come. I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Pressing on. Don't allow your contentment in Christ cause you to be complacent for Christ. Don't think for a moment that you can just say, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of close. I can coast in from here. I can take a day off, a week off, a month off, a year off. I can, I can just kind of coast in from here. That's dangerous. Some of you are getting close to graduation from high school, and you're kind of like, man, I can coast from here. And if you let your spiritual guard down, that's when you'll suffer defeat. Others of you are kind of at that stage where you might be approaching a midlife crisis and you've come to a place in life where you think, well, I can just kind of put, put it on coast for a while, get through midlife season, and back away from spiritual things a little bit. And that's where the devil gets you because he's always in hot pursuit. And then there are others who are saying, but pastor, I am one of those senior adults that you mentioned you were thankful for. Man, it's time for the next generation to step up and serve. I can just kind of coast from here. And God is saying, I've brought you to a place in your life where you've got more time, more energy, more that you can invest, maybe not physical energy, but spiritual energy, a time of great fruitfulness in your life. And if you're not careful, you'll say, no, it's time for me to just kind of bug out on the things of God. How many football fans are here that remember the name of Leon Lett? Just a few of you. Leon Lett was a defensive tackle for the Dallas Cowboys. I'll never forget him. He brought me a lot of laughs back in 93. How many times, some of you football players over here, how many times do defensive tackles get to carry the ball? Man, the defensive linemen, offensive, we don't want to get to carry the ball. I know that Athens Christians, they're not going to do it again because Caleb fumbled the one chance they gave him. I'll let him tell you about the wild moose play later. Leon Lett, defensive tackle, Super Bowl 27, I believe it was, picks up a fumble, and he's running 65 yards to the end zone, and he can't believe it, and he's looking at himself on the jumbotron, and he doesn't see the speedster Don Beebe chasing him down. Whenever I played Super Tecmo Bowl, again, these young people don't know what that's, all about, but whenever I played that video game, 
I always wanted to be the Buffalo Bills because I could just send Don Beebe down the sideline for touchdown passes and just beat anybody I ever played. Don Beebe was fast. He's running. Leon Le- Leon Les looking at himself on the jumbo, trying. He slows down, begins to strut, holds the ball out so he can lay it across the end zone. And before he gets to the end zone, the ball was knocked loose by Don Beebe and goes through the back of the end zone for a touchback. His chance to score a touchdown. Well, listen, the Cowboys blew that game out. They won the game anyway. They, they won the Super Bowl and, and were champions, but that was his chance to score a touchdown. Now, he messed up again in the snowstorm the, the next season anyway, but as he uh, reflects on that, yeah, they won the game. He was on the winning team, but when it was his opportunity, what did he do? He began to coast, and he kind of blew it. Listen, if you are in Christ, you're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You're covered with the blood of Jesus. You're on the winning team. But God says, you know what? I want to give you a chance to score touchdowns. And when you get to that place in life where you can have influence and impact, you think, well, I can just kind of coast from here. That's when the devil pursues you and knocks the ball loose. Have you let up? Are you trying to ride the waves of yesterday's success? Are you asking for a new vision? God, give me a vision for what lies ahead. And when it comes to vision, you need to be saying, this is, this is what my life is all about. I challenge you to write a vision statement. Make it clear, concise, and compelling. Write a personal vision statement guided by Scripture. Take passages like the Great Commission. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Take Passages like the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Passages like the cultural mandate. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You're here for world impact. Take passages like that. Write yourself a personal vision statement. Put it in one sentence and say, listen, when I plan my calendar, when I plan my career, when I reflect in my journal, I'm going to look at this vision statement. I haven't done this yet. I've, I've, I've written a vision statement, but I haven't framed it on the wall. But that might be a good idea, just to put it in print and frame it on the wall in your home somewhere. Get a vision for what God wants to do in the future. And then third, and finally, set goals based on God's call on your life. When you get a vision in place, we need goals, strategic steps to accomplish that vision. So set goals for what you believe God's call on your life is. Now, it's obvious that that goal for Paul was Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity. And so in verse 14, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Toward the goal of the prize, the high call, the upward call, the heavenward call. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm looking forward to that day that I'm in glory. I'm pressing toward heaven. This life is going somewhere, and when I get there, then I will be fully and totally mature and complete and holy. But that's in heaven, right? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's an argument there that this is a a prayer that he was teaching us to pray 
for the kingdom of God to come. Pray for the return of Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come back. We want the kingdom of God. We want to see the millennial reign on this earth. We want to see God's kingdom established where Jesus comes back in the clouds. He sets up his kingdom and he is ruling and reigning on this earth. We're praying for that kingdom to come. But think about this. What was the context of the Lord's prayer? It was in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us how to live in this life by those kingdom principles. How to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ even today. So growing in application of kingdom principles for Paul was kind of like a race. It's kind of like a race. He compared it to a race in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. He said, in a race, not all the, runner, uh, not all the runners run, who run get a prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Run to win, he says. And then he says, athletes go into strict training, and they do this for a perishable crown, one that will fade away. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we're striving, we're pressing on toward, for a crown that will last forever. What will we do, strut around heaven and, and point out all the jewels in our crown? No, we'll take those crowns, Revelation says, and we'll lay them at the feet of Jesus in an act of worship. So right now, we're preparing to make worship even more wonderful for eternity as we will one day lay our crowns at his feet in adoration and worship of him. And he said, life is like a race. We're pressing on. We want to be victorious for Christ. Perhaps Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I think it was probably Luke. There are different opinions on that, Barnabas. It was either Paul or someone influenced by the apostle Paul. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily entangles us, and run with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We know this, Paul loved athletic imagery. And so for him, that pursuit of Christ and spiritual growth and maturity and getting in on all that God has for me, Paul was saying, that's like a race, and I want to run to win. I want to be a champion for Christ, I want to be victorious in the things of God. The context of each one of these passages that I mentioned is holy Christ-like living that is also an example and influence on a lost world. So we're to set those goals based on God's call on our life to live a holy life as a witness, as a worshiper, as a Christ-like believer. It's God's upward call for all of us to be world impact Christians, to live a life that becomes a legacy that makes a difference on this generation and the next and the next. Sometimes we get off course, don't we? Sometimes we lose sight of God's plan. We have our own goals. We have our own dreams. We kind of want to do our own thing every now and then. Man, we'll talk about the God thing on Sunday morning. Maybe even on Wednesday night, bring our kids to Iwana. I don't want to be radical. I don't want to always be guided. Let me, let me get off course just a little bit. Come on, pastor, I'm young. Let me get off course just a little bit. Come on, pastor, I'm older now. I can take a break from the things of God. January 13, 2012, the cruise ship, Costa Concordia. Remember that? 
ran aground in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Italy. Four thousand two hundred fifty-two people were shipwrecked, needed to be rescued. Thirty-two people lost their lives, all because the captain said, you know what, just for a little bit, just for a little bit, I know there's a computer program course that this ship is supposed to take, but the captain said, just for a little bit, I'm going to get off course, get a little bit closer to shore, salute the admiring crowd over here. When he got off course, he became shipwrecked, so humbled by it, he didn't even want to radio in for help until it was too late. See, sometimes we're like, God, I know you have this plan for my life. I know there's this upward call of God in Christ Jesus, but I'm young, I'm middle-aged, I'm old. I can veer off course. It won't hurt just for a little while. And even if we survive it, think of those whose lives we're not impacting while we're off course. Over 4,200 people shipwrecked, 32 lost their lives. I wonder how many people are shipwrecked and spiritually dead because we decide to veer off course for a little while. So set kingdom goals. Those things that make a difference and say, God, I want to be guided by your plan. And so I'm going to spend time in prayer this year. I'm going to spend time worshiping you. I'm going to get myself daily to a quiet time. That personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's going to be number one. No question about it. I'm going to get a fresh vision from you, and I'm not going to try to ride the victories of the past because I'm turning a page. It's a new chapter, and the best is yet to come. I'm going to be a witness by the grace of God, touch my world for Christ through my praying, my going, my giving, my serving. God, I'm not veering off your plan. I want what you have in store for me. Paul wanted to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of for him when he died for him and rose again. Paul on the road to Damascus had run into the resurrected Christ and he never got over it. Have you? Have you gotten over it? Would you bow your heads with me?